chapter 16. Rebellion in the camp. Yes, another fine subject here this morning. <laughs> I think one of the best ways to approach these kinds of texts, and especially this particular section in Numbers, where we have a number of rebellions sort of back-to-back-to-back, you sort of put that in the middle of the book. Because in it, the, our very core, we are rebellious. And it's important to realize how dangerous self-righteousness is. We all have to go through that stage of breaking and being humble before God that we begin to see ourselves from God's perspective. That is why James refers to the Word of God as a mirror. You know, when you look in the mirror, you see things that need to be adjusted or fixed, or cleaned. That's what the Word of God does. So it, it is, you may be reading the Bible. In reality, it's reading you. It's telling you. It's telling me. Where we need cleaned up. We need adjustment. So, <clears throat> lest we look down our self-righteous noses at this rebellious crew of 250 plus one men, uh, save for the grace of God, there go I. We're, we, we, how, you know, often I have this conversation with my wife, I, how did we get saved? How did this, how did this happen? I mean, the odds of making the right choice and, and turning to God, I mean, they're not great in this world. Narrow is the gate. Hard is the way. Wide is the gate to destruction. And many there be that go therein. Praise God for his mercy upon our souls. Thank God every day that, that we've been, we're being delivered, as it were, from our rebellious nature. We're learning how to crucify it. And so I want to set that up because this is rough sledding in here. We're going to read the first 19 verses. There's 50 verses here in this chapter. And obviously there's no way I would do justice to it just blowing through it. I don't think it's important. Uh, I think it's important not to just skim over th certain things. But to sort of be able to extrapolate the things that are there for us. So part one is verses 1 through 19. Uh, the attempted coup by Korah and uh, his crew. Uh, next week we'll have, and we actually, in this section, we'll have Moses' response. So how he responded to, to the coup against his leadership. Next week we'll see how God <laughs> responds to a coup. <laughs> um, mo many of us know the story. It'll be no surprise for you. But and just we'll break it down accordingly. So let's stand and I'll read the first 16, uh, 19 verses here. <clears throat> now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown, 
They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near him, that the one whom he chooses will cause to come near him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the holy one. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing that you, that you, that God of Israel, or to you, that the God of Israel has separated you from among the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them? And that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? Are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And then Moses was very angry, and he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow, you and all your company be present before the Lord, and you and they as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. Two hundred and fifty censers, both you and Aaron, and each with his censer. And so every man took his censer and put fire in it, laid it on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, And then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. You may be seated. So 250 chief princes, they're actually revolting against the Lord and against Moses as God's chosen leaders. um, And it appears, uh, as we've read here, that Korah is the one who's instigated this. Yeah along with uh, the sons of Eliab, Dathan and Byram, who are of the tribe of Judah. And so, uh, if you're familiar with the genealogies, it's kind of interesting. This is sort of, you know, we sort of like downplay looking through the genealogies. Oh, great, these names I can't pronounce, you know. And, he, and we start going through them, but it, they're there for a reason. And it's kind of good to track things, because in one sense, this whole thing, to some degree, is a family affair. Of course, they're 12 brothers in, in 12 tribes, so they're all related in that regard. But here we have uh, sons of Levi. And if you remember, Levi had uh, three sons, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. And they're the ones, as we talked about earlier in, the, uh, in this book, uh, were given certain duties or, and camped around the tabernacle. 
and uh, they each were given different duties. Uh, the Kohathites were given responsibilities, we'll see here, uh, to take care of the furniture inside uh, the holy place and around. They were, the furniture was to be wrapped and taken care of uh, by the priest and then presented to them for transportation, that kind of a thing. But uh, what we want to see through the genealogies here is that uh, Moses' father Amram was the older brother of Izhar, Izhar uh, the father of Korah. And so that makes Moses and Korah cousins. And so you have that relationship. And so there's always uh, seems to be issues in our families, right? Uh, so-and-so doesn't get along with so-and-so, so they don't come to the family gatherings, you know. And so we have these tensions that exist within our families. And, and when we're uh, walking with the Lord and we're walking in the Spirit, those are things that really grieve us. We know that they shouldn't be there. Uh, we do our best at to try to be at peace with all men, as the Scripture instructs us to do. But sometimes that peace is hard to obtain. That unity is hard to obtain because of the unwillingness of the other parties to forgive, to let go, to for whatever reason. And so here we have uh, these family differences and uh, that are making it difficult. I think, uh, of course, um, just remember this when it comes to those things. Love covers a multitude of sin. So it's always best to be loving. And that... It's uh, really the only answer there is to family strife. But we have uh, Dathan and Abiram um, uh, and on. Um, they refuse to come up, and this is verses 12 and 19. We've got the, uh, the first rebellion, and we've got the second rebellion, but they're, they're tied together here. We've got the sons of Korah, you know, Korah leading that group, and then we have the sons of Reuben. Now, if you're given to maps, which I like maps, and I failed to get this <clears throat> sent this morning to the sound booth, but if you're familiar with the setup, the tribes to the south, the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp, the three tribes to the south were Gad, Reuben, and um, um, huh? Manasseh. Manasseh, very good. And so, so, but who camped on the south side of the tabernacle just above them? It would have been the Kohathites. And so you have uh, this malcontent attitude within the church. So as they gather around the water cooler, there's talk. This was not, this is not hard to imagine how this whole thing kind of rolled out. There's, there's issues here. Uh, but I believe this rebellion uh, has come about because of the previous rebellions, uh, the, the unbelief, the, the unwillingness of Israel to trust and obey the Lord. They, uh, these ten tribes, uh, unwilling to accept the report of the two spies, Caleb and Joshua, went along with the ten spies who gave an evil report of the land. And as a result, uh, they received a death sentence. They're all upset. They're discouraged. We're going to die. That which they feared has now come upon them. They're going to die in the wilderness for their rebellion. And they're not happy with it. They're not happy with the leadership that is going to obey God in this. They want to form a new leadership that will allow them to do what they want to do. And that is to escape the wilderness. They're not happy with what God has put upon them. And, and, and for Korah, it is though he has been slighted. I mean, okay, so 
you know, Uncle uh, uh, Amram, uh, Moses' father, you know, maybe he didn't get along with Izar. Who knows? And why did he get, you know, why did Moses get chose, chosen to lead? You know, maybe he saw himself as just as qualified. Uh, I'm a Levite, you know, and why can't I serve? Why do we have to be the ones carrying the 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 equipment. Why are we? Why is the physical burden put upon us? Why couldn't we be the spiritual people and offer sacrifices for the nation? And you can kind of see that there's just this this inferiority complex is upon them, you know, not being satisfied with what God had called them to do, but just wanting more than what God had ordained for them. And so there's this jealousy, uh, obviously, that's brewing. And so as they meet with Reuben, now what was Reuben's issue? Well, uh, this is uh, not a good thing to report, but basically uh, we look at the end of uh, Genesis. Uh, you can pull up the scripture there in Genesis 49, where, and I've got to find it. Yeah, there we go. Jacob is giving uh, the blessing to all the sons on his deathbed. And Reuben, look, you're my firstborn, the beginning of my strength, my might, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. And then the following verse is pretty much the death knell for him. But he was unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. You, he went up to my couch. He sinned against his father and he forfeited his birthright. And probably... Um, quite possible that sting in the relationship with the other members of the family, his other brothers, was never the same. And there's just this ache of having been disqualified. And now uh, seeing uh, the tribe of Levi and Moses and then Judah, two other brothers, they're now the leadership of the nation. And so it's got to hurt. And that pain, no doubt, was passed from Reuben down through his sons, and now it's, it's embedded in, in these men who are now standing up uh, against Moses. So you can kind of see uh, this isn't just, you know, out of, out of the blue, that, oh, that just happened to get a satanic attack, and we all hate Moses all of a sudden. Oh, no. This has been brewing for quite some time. And, and so, uh, it has, as it normally is, it takes time for this uh, attempted coup to uh, sort of uh, come about. But you notice there that the, they rise up, they take men. Uh, there, there are, you notice that they took men. They, you know, anybody that would listen to their sob story, anybody that would go along with, oh, yeah, you've been mistreated. You know, it's really not your fault, you know, that you're th that way. I mean, you know... It's, 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 it's because of the way you were raised. You know, you had such a poor environment you grew up in, and so it's okay that you have these attitudes. I, we understand, you know. They took men. People that would agree with them. There are givers and there are takers, right? And they were the takers. They'll take anybody that'll go along with them. And so they gathered against Moses, as we read there, and then they begin to communicate their opinions. It sounds really good. Moses, you're such a workaholic. You're taking, you've been taking too much upon yourself all your life, and, and now look at you. You're doing more than you should. You really need to share some of this leadership responsibility with us because we're so qualified, you know. And, you know, the pride just reeks out of these statements. You take too much upon yourselves. Look, we're just as qualified as you. 
we've got the lineage going for us. We're, we're sons of Levi. And so really, what there's, literally, it means you're, you assume too much for yourself. This is a real personal attack upon Moses. And so, and they reason, you know, look, the whole congregation is holy. Now, that's a real stretch. <laughs> okay. Oh, they were set apart. Yeah, God chose them. But were they really holy in their conduct? Were they really walking in the Spirit? Were they just men that were just filled with the Holy Spirit? Scripture speaks uh, differently of them. You guys, Moses, you really, you're just using this thing as a platform to exalt yourself. That's all it is. It's all about you, Mo. You know, you know, you're not who you think you are. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, uh, really, the motive why you're doing this is selfish, Moses. You think you're better than everyone else in the camp. You think you're more spiritual, you know. You get to go up on the mountain and, and talk to God while we're down here, you know. I mean, I can, you can imagine all this. Now, on the other hand, and I know that Moses was not like this because the Bible te- tells us that he was meek, but there are pastors, there are church leaders who look in a very condescending way upon the congregants. The, it, it is us and them. And that reeks of pride itself. And that is wrong. You know, the gospel that is preached by evangelists and by preachers, they and we, I'm in that group, we are in just the greatest need of the gospel that we preach is the ones we preach it to, and sometimes more so. And so for pastors and church leaders to act as though they are superior, that they're above the congregation, as if they don't need all that they're giving to the congregants, it's arrogance. And so there may have been some of this going on. I mean, you think about where they were camped, and they're right next to the tabernacle. They, they rub shoulders. They hang out with the brothers. They, they know the weaknesses of, of the men that serve them. And so it would be really easy to, to become critical because they don't like what's coming down, the sentence of death that's upon them now. And now they be, they're just sitting back and they're becoming critical of the leadership. And they want to blame them instead of themselves for the predicament and the problems that they're now facing. And so uh, they begin to point out these faults and weaknesses, no doubt, and they were able to form a group of 250 men, not just any guy off the street. These were men of renown. Uh, actually, the Jewish rabbis, or some Jewish rabbis, uh, are of the opinion that, that Korah uh, was quite rich, very influential, very powerful personality-type guy. And so with these critiques of the leadership, he was able to persuade these other men of renown, these other men of pro- in prominent positions. And this is, you know, of course, just building his case and, and all. We have to remember uh, that Satan works in such subtle ways, and we have to understand that gossip and, and accusation, who, who's, uh, who's the accuser of the brethren? So, and if you're walking with the Lord at any length of time, you know you, you don't listen to those kinds of things. You shut that down. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. 
that the, except at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Hey, did you hear what Pastor so-and-so did? No, and I don't care. You know, just shut it down. You don't, you know, don't pass that stuff on. Avoid it. It only uh, leads to trouble. On the other hand, if there's moral failure, that must be addressed. That must be confronted at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let everything be established. So there's always two sides to a thing. But I like the way Moses responded to this, verses 4 through 11. This is important for leadership. This is important for you and I uh, when you know, we might be the one on the, you know, getting critiqued and criticized. Uh, what did he do? Wait a minute. Hold on. Stop. No response initially. Immediately on the face. Humbled himself before God. Are you going to argue with these guys? It's not going to work anyway, right? They're not going to hear you. Prayer. Prayer diffuses more volatile situations than we can ever imagine. That's the way you respond to rebellion, is you go to prayer. Your kids are rebelling? Pray. They're not responding to your leadership? Pray. They're accusing you, attacking you? Pray. To understand that rebellion, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. It's instigated by the devil working through the flesh and the disappointments that people have experienced. What is the goal here? Never forget the bigger picture. Do you think the devil was really after Moses and Aaron? Oh, yeah, he'd like to make their life miserable. But who's he really after? He's after the nation. You smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They'll become prey for the wolves, the demons that are just waiting to devour God's people. That's why it's so important to pray for leadership in the church. Satan is after the shepherd. If he can smite the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. If he can get the shepherd to have a moral failure, the sheep will be damaged. They'll be hurt. They'll be more susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. And so this is why we had to see the bigger picture. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. So, but Moses did the right thing. He humbled himself before God. He committed the situation on the spot right to God on his face. And then he spoke. Pray, hear from God, then speak. Just a good rule of thumb. This is an obvious display of humility. This is an, obviously is showing the accusations that were coming against him were not true. Uh, and they'll be proved later on in, in the story, obviously. Tomorrow morning, I believe while he was on his face, the Lord just spoke to him. Here's what you do, Moses. If you, and through this action, God would demonstrate exactly what was going on. And these men who were rebelling against God would become an example for the nation of what happens to rebels. You know... <laughs> What is the result? I mean, you know, if you want to get right to the punchline, you bottom liners, you know. Well, if you rebel, it's you can take your choice of death. You can either be burned alive or buried alive, because that's really the result of what we'll see next week. So rebellion, it's not a good choice. But God is going to use this mechanism of the lighting the censers and offering the incense before the Lord to reveal who's his and who is not who will come near him and who has not been ordained and sac uh, sanctified to do so. It's always good when you're under attack to let the Lord be your defense. 
And that's what he's doing. He's allowing God to defend himself. If you are the Lord and you belong to the Lord, let him be your defender. He's a whole lot better defending you than you can ever defend yourself. But if you take up your defense, well, then you sort of you know, nullify what he could do. Oh, it's like the word in so many words is saying, oh, you, you, you want to defend yourself? Okay, go ahead. I'll, I'll let you do that. You're just so much better off letting God defend you. He has a way of turning the screws down uh, really tight, <laughs> tighter than you and I could ever imagine. Um, think of the story of in Esther, what happened there. You let God fight your battles. The very, and this is what happened here. The very thing that they were wanting to do to beat the priesthood and to offer incense, they sought the fire of God, and it was the fire of God that ended up punishing them. The very thing that they're attacking, the very thing God will use. It's amazing how he does that. But the idea is to let God guide our thoughts. Let him guide our actions. And our principle here is the battle belongs to the Lord. He's our victor. I do like what Moses did here. And it's easy to slip by uh, what he was actually saying to Korah. After, after this was presented, he, he then, in verse 9 there, he, he, he kind of has a private word almost, I think, with Korah. Is it a small thing to you that God of Israel has separated you from the congregation? Hey, look, bro, you, you have a position. You've been blessed and given a position by God already. Do you think it's a small thing? Can't you just be satisfied with what God is doing in your life and just rejoice in that? You know, I think it's given in that kind of spirit. You've been separated from the congregation. You're above the congregation. You're already doing something that others cannot do. They're not allowed to do what you've been given the responsibility to do. Do you think it's a small thing to work at the tabernacle and to stand before the congregation to receive the honor that comes in that position, to serve them? You've you, you got to know, Korah, you're not gathering against me. You're going against God. And so I think he's giving uh, them an out. And, and, and that's an important thing. God's giving... Through Moses, God is giving Korah a chance to repent, to see the error of his way. Apparently, he did think it was a small thing. He failed to repent. He continued to move in that wrong direction. And so, you know, look at the mercy and grace of God. And actually, he puts him in his place. Probably could tell that as the conversation was developing, he's not receiving this, right? <laughs> He's not picking up what I'm putting down, right? So, you know, you, Mr. Cora, my cousin, my fellow relative, it is you who are taking too much upon it yourself. You know, when you, when you are right, and not that you are right, but that God is, God is right, and you're in the position under him, you can be as bold as you need to be and tell the truth and speak the truth. Yeah, and I think Moses spoke the truth in love in this situation. Unfortunately, it wasn't received. 
So the second rebellion, verses 12 through 14, uh, he calls for the men from the tribe of Reuben uh, to come up. You know, and if you look at the layout once again, Moses would, would have been toward the east where the Judah tribes were in that area is where they would have camped, and that was just a stone's throw away. All you could do is walk up and let's have a conversation. No, we're not coming up. But we're not submitting to you, Moses. So no. I mean, this is just complete, you know, open rebellion uh, as they refuse to meet with him. And notice how they use the words of Moses against him. And this is so like Satan. How the enemy will take your words and just twist them and manipulate, seek to manipulate, intimidate, and control the situation. So where in the scripture does it ever refer to Egypt as a land that flows with milk and honey? I've yet to find that scripture except here. And it wasn't uttered by, you know, somebody that was walking with the Lord, right? Is it a small thing? You know, he's mocking him. That you've brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a small thing, Moses, that you're the one responsible for bringing us out of Egypt. Now, that was the, a lie right there. I mean, that was a fabrication. Was it really Moses? Moses did that? He, he did all the plagues. He split the Red Sea. He brought them this far. He brought thunder on Mount Sinai. He gave them the law. Really? Moses did all that? Yeah, right. Okay. You just brought us out here to kill us. <laughs> I mean, this is just so, you know, and this is, if it wasn't so serious, it'd be laughable, right? And so many of the attacks that we receive that are just demonic and they're outrageous, they are, by in the surface, seem to be laughable. But if they weren't so serious, but they are. You have not given us any inheritance. They're putting all, their, all the blame on the failures of the nation for their unbelief, their disobedience. They're laying it all at the feet of the leadership. And that's what happens. When you can't accept any responsibility for your wrongs, you'll begin to project that upon the people that are over you. And you'll despise the authority over you. They failed to recognize it was their rebellion, it was their unbelief, it was their lack of faith that brought them to this place of, their, of the death sentence they were facing of 38 more years in the wilderness. You have not given us any f inheritance. There's no fields, there's no vineyards here. See, they, they were fo focusing on what was not done. They had not appreciated what God had done. Boy, isn't that a trap for you and me? You know, you know, as a builder, one of the things that we do, we come onto the site and we're watching this project develop. What are we looking for? We're looking, my personality type anyway, we're looking at what is not done. Why isn't this done? Well, that... You know, rather than being happy with what the crew has done, we'll choose to focus on what's not done. That's kind of discouraging. So you have to learn how to be careful with, you know, those sometimes are just to remain inner thoughts. Not outer thoughts, but inner thoughts, right? You know, it's really easy when you're down in the mouth and you're, things are not going well to look at the negative. 
and what hasn't been done rather than what, what has been done and what God has done. Look at the things that he had done for them. I mean, they're eating every day. Manna and give them meat. Whatever they ask for, water, God gives it to them. Protection from the heat, protection from the cold, how to live right, how to worship and be in his presence and enjoy life in its fullest. They didn't see any of that. All they saw was Moses. Moses. Making life miserable for them. Are you going to put out the eyes of these men? You know, that, that's an idiom uh, of the day. We, I mean, we don't really use that one too much, I guess. Uh, but the idea was, look, you're, you're, you're deceptive. You're, 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 you're using fa- this false hope of this land of flowing with milk and honey to deceive the people into following you because you're on an ego trip. That's really what they're accusing him of. You know, he, but had Moses really given him false hope? No, it wasn't his message. This message started long before he was even alive. I mean, he gave it to Abraham. They passed on to Isaac and Jacob, their dad, if they would remember their history. You see, they were just living in their own created world of self-deception. They were unwilling to repent. That was their problem. They were unwilling to repent and turn back to God and walk by faith. We will not come up. Psalm 106, 16 through 18, gives us a commentary on this, at least a little bit. When they envied Moses in the camp, Aaron the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. A fire was kindled in their company and a flame burned up the wicked. So here we have the real hard attitude, the idea of envy. They were resentful of what the leadership position that had been given to Moses. And you know what happened um, as a result of their conversations. This pride, it's the pride of life, it's something that must be broken from us as we begin to walk with God. We are rebellious by nature against God. And so uh, God has a template, by the way, uh, that he uses for people who he chooses. Those that walk with God, those that are called into the family of God, there's a template that God uses. It, it goes something like this. You're chosen. You're broken. You're forsaken. Well, what appears it feels like, and sense, we sense it like that sometimes. But then we're called, and then we're anointed. You we must learn to reach the end of ourselves before God can begin to do the work that he's created us and intended for us to do. There's a process of making men and women godly. This, this process played out in Moses' life beautifully. It actually, in 40-year segments, it's pretty hard not, uh, to miss this, really. Uh, he spent 40 years becoming a somebody in the land of Egypt. He was educated there. Uh, Josephus re, uh, tells us that he became uh, highly educated and very skillful in military uh, expeditions and, and uh, very learned in that manner. And 
realizing that God had called him to be the delivery, he thought, well, let's go for it. So I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he thought he would kill every um, Egyptian that stood in the way one at a time. <laughs> uh, but that didn't work out, so he, he, he left the scene. He ran and spent the next 40 years becoming a nobody, hiding out in the backside of the desert with sheep, being a shepherd for his father-in-law. Just, I'm sure he totally gave up on the vision that God had given him, the revelation that God had given him. He, like I tried, I blew it. It took him 40 years to become broken and just completely forgotten, as it were, by God. And then now, at the end of that 40 years, he's ready to receive the call from God. And once he responds to the call of God, which is what we have to do, he's anointed by God, to fulfill the mission that was ordained for him. Very important to know that you are chosen. God hasn't changed his mind. You're chosen. He's taking you through the trials and tribulations of life. You've experienced a broken heart. You've experienced failure. You've been forgotten. You feel forsaken where you're right where you, God wants you to be. You're at a position where now you can listen and you can receive what God is wanting to tell you and how he's wanting uh, to use you. He's calling you and he's going to anoint you that you might fulfill his mission, that which he created you for. But these early years, these formative years are very important. We struggle. We wait. We often faint along the way. We're like David, how long, O oh Lord, you know? Guy was anointed at probably around the age of 15 or so. We don't really know that age. But we know he didn't take the throne until he was 30. Where are you? I mean, why is this guy trying to kill me all the time? What did I do to him, you know? Suffering, pain, struggle. That's all part of God's process. You see, these men who were rising up against Moses, Korah and his crew, Dathan and Abiram, they had no idea what this process was about. They had not yielded themselves. They were unwilling to submit to the plans and purposes of God. They, they saw God's acts, as it tells us in another place in Psalms, but they did not know God's ways. Moses understood the ways of God, and therefore God acted through him. Very important principles for us to uh, gather in from this particular text. You know, I know that there's a lot of you who are up in age. You've walked with the Lord for a number of years. You have good good experience. You've probably gone through this process. And uh, maybe you're waiting for the call still. Or you, you, you just, you know, because a lot of times in that formative years, there's, the Lord doesn't speak a lot. I don't think the, Moses heard from the Lord a lot in the backside of the desert there. He's just hidden and forgotten. And maybe that's kind of where you're at. Who knows? I mean, but um, it's not too late to get back on the path of obedience. Maybe you feel like you've failed too many times. Oh, come on. Join the crowd. We've all failed. We've all blown. We've all made mistakes. We've all had lapses. None of us have perfect faith. 
God understands that. He's made provisions for that. Don't throw in the towel, as he says to the writers in Hebrews. We're not of those who draw back unto perdition. We don't take in the sail. We're not just going to go adrift here. We're going to stay true, and we're going to stay with God, and we're going to wait. Suffering has a way of doing what nothing else can do in the human soul. And so God allows it. Embrace it. You'll be the better for it. Now, to drive home this point of it's not too late, I want to refer, and I'm going to spiritualize here a little bit, if you'll allow me the liberty here. John, turn, turn to John 6, 15 through 21. Many of you are familiar with this late night boat trip across the Sea of Galilee without Jesus. And um, they've wanted to take Jesus and make him king, so that's not going to happen. Take him by force. God doesn't work by force. So he goes up on the mountain alone to pray, and he sends the disciples in the boat. And John 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over to the sea towards Capernaum. It was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because of a great wind blowing. And so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. And he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. As I said, some of you may think it's too late for you all, I've got good news for you. You're still breathing? It's not too late. <laughs> God can. God is the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, right? The winds of life have been contrary to you, right? You've taken a beating. You've, you've gone through a lot of suffering. And the Lord, I think, is saying to you simply, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. You can't see me, it's dark. I know, it's dark. I know it's rough sledding, it's wind's blowing, it's tough. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything. Have you let fear grip your heart? Is, is fear crippling your faith? Do not be afraid. Jesus, God has not for one second taken his hand off your life. He's not that way. He's not... Like us in our fickleness with our relationships with people who disappoint us or let us down. He never takes his hand off of us. Don't be afraid. I'm coming to you. The question is this. Will you let him in your boat? Are you going to welcome him in? Are you going to continue to resist in the pride of life saying, Well, you know, I failed too much. Oh, you're saying then that the blood is not sufficient. Are you saying the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover you and get you to heaven, but, but not for your failures for you to accomplish the purposes of God? That's like, I don't get that. There's a disconnect there. It's not logical. Are you willing to let him in the boat? Now, this is the cool part. And I don't really understand this. And I think it means what I think it means. But I could be wrong. You judge. 
It says, immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. It was like, did he just, like, do a time warp? I mean, were they, like, this far from shore when he got on the boat? I doubt it. Peter walked. He got out there, remember, in another gospel. So, what, what, wait. You mean, they got on the boat here, and then he... Whoosh, you see, God's able to restore what's been lost. He's not confined to our time constraints or our time pressures. It's amazing, isn't it? So this should give you who think you're late, and it's too late, it's too dark, you've made too many mistakes, wrong. Let him in your boat. Let him in your boat. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. There's one other scripture, and I'm going to go just a little bit longer because I think this is for someone. This is probably for more than, probably for all of us, maybe. Numbers 26, 9 through 11. And this has to do with the Korathites. Remember, Korah's the guy that's going to die. But not all his family died. In Numbers 26, it tells us that not all the children of Korah died that day. So that means the ancestral line continued. So just be for a moment here. Another scripture that will sort of substantiate what I'm about to say. First Chronicles 9, 19. Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Besef, the son of Korah, and his brother of his father's house, were in charge of the work of the service gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their fathers had been keepers of the entrance of the camp of the Lord. So even though they had a, in their ancestral line a man who was attempting a coup, who died for his rebellion against God, Yet that did not affect his ancestral line for them to be effective and used of God. There are some people who and their families have been involved in ministry and there may have been moral failure. There may have been attacks upon the ministering family that have just brought tremendous damage to their family. And as a result, there's been an a lot of bitterness, resentment, a lot of brokenness. And there are some people that think that that's irreparable, that that kind of action would completely destroy any potential future opportunities to minister and be a minister for the Lord. Well, here we have uh, proof that that's not true. Seven generations after Korah, guess who arrived on the scene as a judge, one of the last judges in the first of the prophets. Yeah, Samuel. He's in that line. I think it's a wonderful redemption story. Not only that, if you look uh, in the Psalms, there are 11 Psalms attributed to the sons of Korah. If you do a little more research, First Chronicles 12.6, uh, there was a couple of, uh, of his descendants who became 
great warriors in David's army. And they were singers. They were, and some of them were, became musicians, obviously, along with Asaph. Her man was a musician and served along with Asaph. You see, here's the thing. You let Jesus in your boat and you begin to sing, you begin to worship, and you begin to just forget about the past, let the blood of Christ just come cover all your failures. All that backwash, that damage, all the broken relationships within a family that can happen, the resentment that you've been cheated and you should have had a shot at leadership or you should have, this should have happened to you or that shouldn't have happened, all of that. Paul says, I... I push the past, I, I put it behind me. I press towards the mark, towards the goal of obtaining what Christ obtained me, apprehended me for. But you've got to let him in the boat and you've got to begin to worship. And you've got you to fight the good fight of faith. Your ancestral line, your past failures are not an excuse for you not to advance in your work in the kingdom. So get busy. Get busy doing what God has called you to do. He hasn't changed his mind. I'm glad you understand you're, bro- you're chosen, that you're broken. That you've gone through a, a desert experience feeling forsaken and forgotten by God. I'm glad you've gone through that. That's important. You understand what you're made of now. And now you know the propensities of your flesh. And now when God calls you, and he speaks to you, understand that he's going to anoint you. He'll get you to the other place. He'll get you to where you need to be immediately, right? He'll get you where you need to be. There's a number of you seeking the Lord and what God has called you to do. You're in transition. You're in transition. A lot of us are, I'm in transition. We're all in transition. God is about to do something that that'll, is probably going to separate our head from our shoulders, if you will, metaphorically speaking. It's going to be awesome. But he's had to take all of us to the backside of the desert and really humble us. And he's not done humbling us. I'm not saying that. Because he wants to do something because there are so many blind, there's so many lame, there's so many needs in our nation and it's only going to grow worse over the next few months in the coming months and years. God is going, wants to raise up his army and we can't be sitting back here licking our wounds, feeling sorry for ourselves because of what happened in our lives when we were younger. Let's put it behind us. And so now, I'm going to close with communion here. And this is, this is a little radical, okay? We don't always hear this. Communion is a time of remembrance. But it's also a time of the supernatural. And what do I mean by that? It, it is when we believe what Jesus has said, it becomes a reality. That is a supernatural work within our souls. That's what I'm referring to here. In John 6.53, Jesus made a statement that, that just blew the people away. In fact, people, when they heard this, were like, well, I think we're done following this guy. That's how radical it was. Jesus starts out this truth with saying, most assuredly, 
Or in the King James, I think it's truly, truly, or verily, verily. When he doubles up like that, that means you better listen up because what I'm about to say is very, very important. And this is what he says. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my drink, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate and manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. You know, people heard that. They're like, what? We're talking cannibalism? What? Okay, you know, what, what, what happened at the time when they uh, offered the bulls and the lambs? They would partake of the sacrifice. They would bring their family, they would make the sacrifice, and they would go off to the side and have dinner with Yahweh in his house. That's why, again, as I've said before, this is why Jesus was always eating with the sinners. God wants to commune with his people, his created ones. If you're going to have eternal life, then you must partake of the sacrifice. If you are unwilling to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are unwilling to accept His blood as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, you cannot be saved. You must be willing to drink it. Let it become part of you. Take it in. The same with His body. Now, there are those who take this literally when you take the juice and the bread and it actually physically in reality becomes that. Well, that might be a bit of a stretch, as I believe it is. But think in terms. It's more than a memorial service. Yes, we remember what Jesus did, but think about this. You are bringing the life of God to your soul, to your spirit. I was sharing with the ladies in, as we took communion earlier this morning, I know of a pastor who him and his wife would take communion every, every morning. Because he was, and, I, and, I, and I'm of the opinion that you can overdo this and it sort of loses some, can lose its significance, right? But this guy, in his elderly years, his zeal for God was incredible. He believed that as he's taking in the bread, drinking the cup, that he's bringing the life of God to his soul. And he wanted eternal life. He wanted the life that God had to offer him. And that's what you're going to do this morning. You're going to take the cup. You're going to peel it back and you're going to take the bread. Eat the bread. Eat the body of Christ. You're going to drink the juice. You're going to drink the blood. You're going to be drinking the life of God into your soul and your spirit. It's more than a memorial service. It is communion. It is oneness with God. You're assimilating His life and how we desperately need that. Father, I thank you for the word that you've given to us 
to encourage us this morning. I thank you, Father, that you've given us these elements as a way, Lord, to never, ever forget what it has taken to bring about our salvation and how you provided it for us. We're so thankful for the body of Christ. We're so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Jesus. And now, Father, as we take inventory, as we reflect upon what you have done for us in our relationship to you, Lord, may we truly become one with you now as we partake together. In Jesus' name.